This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. I'll tell you what a blessing to be a part of Operation Suffolk and to, to host a group of high school girls this weekend. Uh, the female population in my house swelled from 3 to 13, I think, over, over the weekend. And it was so great to see these girls getting into God's Word in their group and then going out and, and doing ministry. I am so thankful as a pastor and as a parent for a church that cares about ministry to students and to children. And so this has been a wonderful Weekend, Mark chapter 3, and we're going to talk about a time for choosing this morning. And we have progressed in our study of Mark up to the 20th verse of chapter 3. And so we're going to begin there and read through the end of chapter 3. Then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whoever Whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this text. We thank you for the way that you have been at work in the life of our church family this weekend. And we pray that you would continue that now as we study your word. May your spirit encounter us in, in power and with your truth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. On June 16, 1858, a thousand delegates met at the Illinois State House and they nominated Abraham Lincoln to run for the U.S. Senate against Stephen A. Douglas. And Lincoln would, would go on to lose that Senate race. But 
the speech that he gave on that occasion is one of the most famous in American history. And Lincoln spoke directly to the issue of slavery, and he quoted from the text that we're going to study today. Lincoln said, A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Now, if you were to ask Americans who said a house divided against itself cannot stand, if they could answer your question at all, most of them would say Abraham Lincoln. But of course, Lincoln was quoting Jesus. Why did Jesus say this? What was he trying to communicate? And how does it apply to us today? Let's talk about that. What do we see in this text? The first thing that we see here is a very stark contrast. Let's look at verse 20. It says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. So last week, we saw that the crowds that were following Jesus had become so large and so intense, so passionate in their desire to get to Jesus, uh, that at one point, Jesus has to even get it in a boat just to avoid being crushed by the human flesh that was pressing in around him. And then he withdraws from Capernaum. And we saw last week he went up to the mountain and called the twelve to himself. Well, now he's back again in Capernaum. And once again, these large, passionate crowds are pressing in to the point that just the normal things of life, like eating a meal, have become logistically difficult. So what you see here is that by this point, Huge numbers of people just revere Jesus. They might not have put all the pieces together about his identity, but, but they revere him. Now contrast that with the attitude of his biological family. Look at verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Now, one would think that his family would have been proud of him, that they would have been tempted toward, uh, toward sinful pride and thinking, you know, hey, a member of our family has become this famous. I mean, you would think that they would have been sort of proud of what he was doing, but yet that's not their attitude at this point. At this point, his biological family, is, they're, they're sort of embarrassed. They are Fearful, Because consider what is happening. Jesus is making these audacious claims about himself. You know, already he's claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. He's claimed to, to have authority over the Sabbath, to be Lord of the Sabbath. And this is incurring the wrath of very powerful political and religious authorities. And so Jesus' family at this point, they probably fear for his life. 
They don't really understand what he's doing. Family, uh, pressure is being brought to bear on their family. And so at this point, his family just thinks, hey, let's just let's get down there to Capernaum and just grab him and get him back to Nazareth and deprogram him. You know, sort of the way that we would want to do, uh, that parents or siblings would want to do if, if, a, if, if a child or, or, or brother had been, uh, was part of a cult. You know, we want to get them out of that situation, deprogram them, let's let life get back to normal. That's, that was the attitude of Jesus' family at this point. In fact, John 7, 5 tells us very explicitly that at this point, not even his own brothers believed in him. Now, of course, later on, they were going to figure it out. James, one of his brothers, was going to go on to become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He's going to write the epistle of James. Another brother, Jude, would write the epistle of Jude. And so eventually these brothers became leaders in the church. But at this point, they just think their brother has gone off the deep end. But what happened? What, what transformed them? The same thing that transformed lots of people. Jesus rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, then every claim that he had made about himself began to make sense. When he rose from the dead, then, then, then the pieces of the puzzle began to fit. Everything came together. It was the resurrection that was so transforming to his brothers and to, and, and to, and to many others. Now... Mary, you might think, would be in a different situation because prior to Jesus' birth, the angel had appeared to Mary and told her that the child she was going to, uh, to give birth to was going to be a very special child, very special mission. But listen, Mary could never have imagined what this was going to be like. The claims that he was making, the pressure that was coming on the family, the danger that he was, was now in. She could never have imagined what that would, would be like. And so, you know, she's not there either in terms of, of, of truly understanding what is going on. Again, it was the resurrection that put all this, all the pieces together. But at this point, his family is not there uh, they're just like, hey, let's get him out of this situation. Let's grab him, get him back to Nazareth, get life back to normal. There's this contrast, stark contrast, between the attitude of these crowds who are so passionate to get to Jesus and the attitude of his biological family who just want to get him out of this situation. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus is going to create a new family that's even closer than blood. A spiritual family. That's the second thing that we see here. Jesus is creating a spiritual family. Let's skip down to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, come on out, let's go back to Nazareth, let's let life get back to normal. Verse 32, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, how ironic is this? The very people that you would think would be on the inside, his biological family, 
They've placed themselves on the outside because of their unbelief. And the people that are inside with Jesus, well, they're not the types of people that you would think would be on the inside. They're the types of people that you would think would be very much on the outside. Who is sitting around that table with Jesus? Well, uh, members of the, the Twelve, to be sure, and as we saw last week, they, were, they themselves were a very diverse group. Who, who else was forming sort of the core of his followers at this point? Uh, we saw it in chapter 2 and verse 15. It says there, as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Despised people like tax collectors who were regarded as, as traitors and criminals by respectable people. People like prostitutes. Irreligious people. People that were considered trashy, lowlife, riffraff, the dregs of society. They're inside with Jesus, sitting around the table. And see, what Jesus is doing is he is doing a beautiful work of transformation in their lives. And he is forming them into a new family, a spiritual family of brothers and sisters. Verses 33 and following. He answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now to fully understand the shock value of this, you need to understand something about first century Jewish culture because the attitude towards family was very different. You know, today, it's not unusual for families to be separated by thousands of miles, and it's not unusual for people to, to, to move away from home, and you know, they sort of develop a, a, a close group of friends uh, where they live that can sort of become like a family. But in, in, in the first century, that was not the case. In, the, in first century Jewish culture, the overwhelming majority of people they would do the same trade or the same business as their parents, and often multiple generations of the family would live together in the same house. So this, what he was saying here was incredibly shocking to the people who were listening. Now what can we gather from it? The first thing is this. You don't become a disciple of Jesus by biology. <laughs> By genetics. You are not a disciple of Jesus because your father and mother are disciples of Jesus. And, and if they're not disciples of Jesus, it doesn't mean that you can't become a disciple of Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus, as we saw last week, is about being with him and doing his will. We saw last week that Jesus, as he called the disciples to himself, he called them that they might what? Be with him, and he sent them out to do his will. 
disciples are first of all those who have chosen to be with Jesus. They have chosen to come to Jesus in repentance and in faith. And they love to be with him. Listen, do you have a desire to be with Jesus? Do you desire his presence? Do you desire to walk with him? Do you have a hunger and a thirst for the scripture? Do you long to sit at his feet and drink in his truth? That's the mark of a disciple. And the other mark of a disciple is that a disciple is not only a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. He called the disciples to be with him and he sent them out to do his will. Do you have a desire to serve the Lord? Are you willing to go out and to not only hear the truth, but to do the truth? These are the marks of discipleship. And and listen, none of that comes by osmosis. It doesn't come because of the the biology. (laughs) There has to be a decision. That's the other massive implication of this. There, There must be a choice. There must be a decision to follow Christ. John Stott was one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. He became a believer, a disciple, when he was 17 years old. He attended very exclusive British prep school, rugby school. And when he was 17 years old, a friend of his named John Bridger invited him to attend a ministry on campus where they would have special speakers and so forth to come in. And on this particular day, a speaker came in and John Stott describes what God did in his life that day. He said, as he spoke, I was riveted. His text was Pilate's question. What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? That I needed to do anything with Jesus was an entirely novel idea to me. But this speaker was quietly but powerfully insisting that everybody had to do something about Jesus and that nobody could remain neutral. Either we copy Pilate and weakly reject him or we accept him personally and follow him. See, a decision has to be made. Now, some people can point to the exact moment when that decision is made. Not everybody can. Some people can't point to an exact moment, but they know that they have decided to follow Jesus. You must know that, right? It, this, uh, you, nobody is automatically a disciple. It's a time for choosing. And, and so Jesus here is creating this, this spiritual family that is composed of people who have chosen to follow him. The third thing that we see in this text is we see satanic blasphemy. Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. Now now you can begin to understand why his family is so concerned. Okay, It's no longer just the Galilean authorities that are questioning him at this point. Now the big boys from Jerusalem have made their way up to Galilee and they're no longer sort of just skeptically questioning Jesus. They're no longer just asking, hey, how can this guy talk like this? Now 
they are hurling the worst accusation imaginable. They are saying that he is possessed by Satan and the works that he is, is doing, he's doing them by the power of Satan. See, by this point, the enemies of Jesus know that they can't simply deny what is happening. It's happening on too broad of a scale. There are just too many people by this point that have been healed by Jesus. There are too many people by this point that have been freed from demonic possession and captivity. They can't deny what is happening. People will just laugh at them. And so what do they do? They basically take this nuclear option and they say, well, yeah, he's doing these things, but he's doing them by the power of Satan, Beelzebul, the master of the house, the master of the house of demons. I mean, they are quite literally demonizing Jesus. Jesus calmly responds with just the most devastating common sense logic in verses 23 and following. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. See, Jesus just basically exposes the senselessness of what they were saying. Satan isn't into self-destruction. He's not rising up against his own house. But make no mistake, someone from outside of his house has come to plunder him and destroy him. Verse 27, Jesus says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now the plunderer here is Jesus. Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. To plunder his house. Jesus is, is binding. He's come to bind the devil and to unbind those who were held captive by the devil. The first healing that we see in the Gospel of Mark is what? It's the man who was delivered from demonic possession. This man who had lived his life in the chains of, of, of demonic enslavement was just miraculously liberated, freed by Jesus. Now, if you take a look around at our world today, I think you'll agree that there are plenty of people who have been taken captive by Satan to do his will. When you look at the things that are happening in our culture and in our world these mass shooters and suicide bombings. Listen, these, these people are bearing all the marks of those who have been taken captive by demons to do their will. When you look at things in our world like, like sex trafficking, the sex trafficking of children, the enslavement 
of human beings, the trade of human beings for uh, purposes of sexual slavery. When you look at the drug trade, listen, these things are shot through with the demonic. When you look at human beings who are just reduced to slavery, enslavement by the addictions in their lives, their addiction to drugs or addiction to pornography or whatever it is, where people are just bound. Listen, there there is evil supernatural activity that is involved in that. And see, those are just sort of more obvious things. But, but listen, many of us lead very outwardly, very respectable, normal lives. But on the inside, we're dealing with things that are holding us back. Things that are binding us. Thing, things that are keeping us from flourishing as human beings. You know, thing, things like, um, like idols in our hearts. Heart, heart idols, a lot of times that we can't even see. We don't even, we don't even realize it. There, it's like a blind spot in our life, but there's something that's just uh, holding us back. You know, feelings of inferiority or just the need to always be in control or fear or anger or bitterness unforgiveness and these things just 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 bind us i want to tell you something jesus christ can free you of every one of those things every one of them jesus has come to bring deliverance to the captives verses 28 and following He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Now we come here to an issue that a lot of people have anxiety about. The so-called unpardonable sin. Or unforgivable sin. Or as Jesus refers to it here, the sin against the Holy Spirit. And there are a lot of people who live with a sense of anxiety that somehow, uh, somewhere along the line, perhaps they are guilty of this sin. And that they can never be forgiven. Listen, if you have any anxiety at all that you have committed this sin, you have not committed it. James Edwards, New Testament scholar, is so spot on when he says this. Anyone who is worried about having committed the sin against the Holy Spirit has not yet committed it. For anxiety of having done so is evidence of the potential for repentance. There is no record in Scripture of anyone asking forgiveness of God and being denied it. So this is not an issue of someone coming to God and asking for forgiveness and, him say, and God saying, no, I'm not going to forgive you because you've committed the unpardonable sin. That, that is not it. People who have committed this sin are never going to come to Christ for forgiveness. They are never going to desire forgiveness. They are never going to even see their need for forgiveness because they have chalked up the work of God to Satan. That's what these these people had done. And it didn't matter 
what Jesus did. It didn't matter what, how many miracles he did, how many good things he did for people. They were just going to chalk it all up as the power of Satan. It's sort of like if someone had a disease and there was only one surgeon who could perform the life-saving surgery that they needed, but they have convinced themselves that this surgeon is actually a sadistic murderer who is going to kill them on the operating table. They're never going to come. They can, ne- they can never be healed. They've convinced themselves that the only doctor who can heal them is the devil. And so they're never going to come for healing. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You know, they, they, they have, they're going to write anything that he does. They're going to chalk it up to the work of Satan. And so um, they're, they're, not going to, they're not going to come for forgiveness, for healing. Now, all this points to the fact that there is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. There wasn't then, and there isn't now. There can be no neutrality when it comes to Christ. There there really is no middle ground. I mean, people who say that, well, you know, I'm willing to accept Jesus, that he was... That he existed, and great religious leader, great teacher, but I'm just not tracking with the whole Son of God thing. Those people are kidding themselves. I mean, Jesus rules that position out by the kinds of claims that he makes about himself. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity is is exactly right when he says this. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, Lewis is right. You must make your choice. And there can be no middle ground. Jesus rules that out by the kinds of claims that he makes about himself. But listen, if he rose from the dead, then every single claim is validated. If he rose from the dead, then, then everything that he said and everything that he did makes perfect sense. The pieces of the puzzle all fit. And if he rose from the dead, that means that new creation has begun. And that means that new life can begin for you. Let's pray.
as we reflect before the Lord right now, the work is done. Jesus has lived the perfect life that we could never live. Jesus has died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus has risen from the dead so that new life can begin and eternal life can begin for us. But friend, you must decide. You cannot remain neutral. And and you are not a believer. You are not a disciple because of the family that you were born in. You must choose to follow Christ. This is a time for choosing. Jesus calls you to himself. Turn to him today in repentance and in faith. Say, Lord, I trust you. I give you my life. I've decided to follow you. Father, thanks so much for your word. Thank you for the work of your son. Thank you that you so love the world that you gave your son for us. Help us to live in the reality of that new life, that new creation. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. You are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.